What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Right now on Fast from Bear Market Bounce to Bear Market Blue. Stocks falling ahead of tomorrow's jobs report. Hawkish Fed talk casting doubts on the pause and pivot chatter. Plus gushing gains of energy trade pumping big profits this week. The XLE up 14% as crude has been on a climb. And later, a major move in marijuana stocks because of an executive action by the White House. And Elon Musk's new move as he tries to bring the Twitter deal to the finish line. Twitter saying not so fast. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site, a full house tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami all here with me. We start off with breaking news out of the Fed. Governor Christopher Waller just now starting to speak at the University of Kentucky in Louisville. Let's get to Steve Leisman, who's got all the headlines. Hey, Steve. Yeah, Melissa, and he's throwing more cold water on the pivot trade. He says he anticipates additional rate hikes into early next year. Current monetary policy says it's slightly restrictive, though he is starting to see some adjustment in interest rate sectors. More on that in just a second. But he says recent inflation reports do not support a slower pace of rate hikes or a lower terminal policy rate than he's envisioned. Policy, he says, must be used aggressively to bring down inflation. He talks about this issue of financial stability, which has been making the round, just whether or not it would stop the Fed from rate hikes. He says financial stability uh, is unlikely to stop that and therefore unlikely to derail. Financial stability says it's unlikely and therefore unlikely to derail rate hikes. He sees some increased volatility and liquidity strains in the markets, but overall, he says they remain orderly. He says the Treasury, equity, commodity markets are all functioning normally, points out that banks are well capitalized and the Fed has tools in place to address financial stability concerns. On the issue of housing and interest rate sectors, he says so far the correction has been fairly mild, but he cannot rule out the possibility of a much larger drop in demand and in housing prices. He expects housing inflation, however, because of the calculations, to continue well into next year. Melissa? Steve, um, Santelli was talking to Scott Minard uh, in the OT just now, and, and Minard said basically that he, he thinks the Fed will keep going until something breaks and the chance of a financial accident happening uh, is greater over time. Why do you think the Fed is so monolithic in, in what it is telegraphing to the markets? I mean, yes, they want the markets to really believe it, but it's interesting that no one is expressing any sort of doubt about how far you need to go, especially when we have not seen the impact of the rate hikes yet? Uh, I think because they have, don't have inflation under control, they're not seeing things like in the PCE, they're not seeing it uh, uh, come down and they're not seeing the kind of progress they'd hoped for. I believe uh, earlier today, one of the Fed officials who spoke uh, said he hadn't seen the inflation uh, 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 progress that they were hoping for. Um, also, uh, there is this notion out there about financial stability and whether or not something will break. I can't argue with uh, Scott Miner's projection. I will say that I talked to two uh, guys who run billions and trillions of dollars, and I asked them, I said, if uh, the financial crisis was a 10 on the Richter scale and March of 2020 was a 10 also, what would you say right now? He goes, it's, they, they both said five or six. 
So there is some illiquidity out there. They can get things done. Scott is correct, or at least I can confirm what Scott said, that some things are being done in smaller lots. You go down the credit spectrum, uh, things are tougher to do. Uh, Sometimes in certain tenors uh, in the treasury market, there are uh, wider bid ask spreads. But I'm not hearing any kind of seizing up that would require the Fed to come in. I think there's this tendency to kind of compare uh, what's happening right now with what happened in England. So far, I don't see the or hear those kind of things out there. Things are tougher, uh, but they're not uh, a system, uh, a situation of financial instability. I think Morgan Brennan said it really earlier, uh, said it really, really well earlier today. She said, don't confuse market volatility with financial instability. Yeah. Unless you're seeing huge, gigantic moves in the bond market, the most liquid market in the entire world. I mean, I, I, I understand that sentiment completely, and I agree with her 99% on that. But I, I think that these tremendous moves that we've seen may be signs that there is something happening here under the surface. Anyway, Karen's got a question. Yeah, um, Steve, so I'm wondering, does, does the Fed want to talk the stock market, literally the stock market down, because we had, you know, a giant rally, and then sort of the hawks came out unmasked with the same, you know, basic hawkish rhetoric, packaged slightly different by each of them, but they really wanted to drive that home. Do they want the stock market down? You know, Karen, there's that old phrase about... Uh, um, uh, don't be, you know, even though you may be paranoid, doesn't mean they're not talking about you behind your back. Um, I, I can see how you could feel that way being in the stock market. But I, I guess I can report that I don't think the Fed aims for the stock market to be at a certain place. I think it aims for bond yields and financial conditions to be tighter overall. And the stock market's going to fall where it is going to fall uh, with those higher bond yields. I think that's the way the Fed looks at things. I, I, I think it feels as if predicting the stock market and stock market reaction is something that's very difficult for it to do, but it can uh, 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 influence the bond market, and that's what it's attempting to do uh, in, the, in the primary situation, and secondarily is what happens with the stock market. Steve, thanks, as always. Steve Leesman. Well, we got those headlines as we count down to the September employment report. Economists expecting the U.S. to add 250,000 jobs last month. Stocks pulling back for a second day ahead of the report. And the yield on the 10-year treasuries climbed back above 3.8 percent. But what impact will Waller's comments and tomorrow's numbers have on the markets? Uh, it was above 3.8 percent. We got the dollar index also just a whisper away from, from highs here, up more than a percent here. Tim, what do you make of it all? Right. I talked you know, a couple of days ago. I was able to get excited that the dollar is down 4% in four days, et cetera, et cetera. Dollar up over 1% today. The two-year, which you know, I think the short end of the curve is a lot more sensitive right now, obviously, to what's going on with Fed funds. And you're back at the 426, 433 was your high. Uh, Waller focused on the labor market. I think tight labor market was exactly a quote. Every Fed official in the last week, and we've had many, we had a bunch today, uh, seems to be focused only on the labor market. Remember, the Fed's got a dual mandate. They've got inflation and they've got growth. They're not talking about the growth obviously. But uh, to be clear, they are leaning so far to one side of the boat that they're making it very clear that they don't mind overshooting. Are you a fan of Maya Angelou's work, Mel? By oh, yes, chance? of course I am. Yeah, how can you not be? But how can you not be, right? Yes. And she famously said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. So you say, mm. all right, Swiss, what are you, what are you talking about? That's what the, they roll out everybody they possibly can roll out, and they're telling us they want things lower. Believe them the first time, and we've been saying that for a while. So it's clear the stock market's not in their purview correctly now for the first time in years. And I don't think it's an S&P put as much as it is 
a credit market put. And the credit market shows no signs. Some cracks in the armor, absolutely, but shows no signs. The credit market goes, we'll have a much different pivot conversation. But until then, they're full speed ahead. Do you think there are cracks uh, in the credit market that are slowly showing themselves? Slowly, but not, I mean, you know, credit markets, they don't really move so linearly, let's say. They do have these sort of stops and starts. I know the financing market for LBOs is very, very tight to maybe shut down. Yeah. But, um, you know, I look at things like the LQD and the HYG. Yeah, they're trading lower, but they're not, you're not yet seeing the giant downgrades. You're not seeing any defaults, really. Um, I think as we maybe get closer to refinancing and how difficult that's going to be, maybe that's the time. It doesn't feel panicky to me at the moment. Yeah. We want a, this is going to sound perverse almost. But a jobs report that shows, right, a bad number. I was going to say a good number, but then I realized when I say good, it means weak. A bad number, meaning more jobs lost. Unemployment rate goes higher. That's what the markets really want. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a whole host of scenarios that they're below the estimate or above the estimate that probably don't move the market too particularly violently. And I think a really hot number um, probably does, right? And if that unemployment rate doesn't move up uh, in any way, shape, or form that leads us to believe it's going to get near 4% anytime soon, that's probably not great for stocks. So we talked about that gap that we saw Monday morning. It's, uh, as Guy said, gaps are meant to be filled. And if we have hot data, I just suspect that that gap gets filled pretty quickly. And we talked about it earlier in the week. And then we're back at a really tricky technical level. It's back towards those June lows or so that we are contending with. Just say this about that comment about, like, you know, economic conditions and how risk happens and all that stuff. Go back to 2007. You remember there was, like, a little haywire action in stocks and some other risk assets in the summer. What the Fed did first is they cut the discount rate, right? And they, at the time, they really didn't give any hint that they were going to cut Fed funds. And they did not soon after. And then things just really started to get a bit unwound. So when you think about all the tools in their toolbox, yeah, they have them. But when they start to move, if they do, because they're worried about financial conditions, people talk about things breaking. Well, the things that break and go straight to what you're talking about with, with credit and all that sort of stuff. And we've seen the currency move. We've seen some weird moves in commodities. Uh, we've seen the violence and or the volatility in rates. I mean, we're probably not far off from something like that if they were to persist in a manner, right, like a bit further than people suspect. So, again, you know, I just think that they'll do what they need to do if they kind of push too far. And I think a lot of people are thinking they are going to break something and they're going to push too far. Well, I mean, if the thinking right now, and I think cons- I, I, I am reluctant to say consensus, but I feel like more and more people are saying that 5% unemployment rate is sort of what the Fed may target. Maybe that will be the signal for the Fed to, quote unquote, pivot. It's a long way. That's a major way. move. That's, a, That's a, a long way from where we are right now, from where we are projected to be when the numbers come out tomorrow, 3.7%. And what does the world look like on the way to a 5% unemployment rate? That. Well, I mean, well, the lag time to 5%, Tim can speak to this. I mean, it's not happening over the next couple of months. That takes yeah. over the course, uh, my sense is, over the course of a year. So what does the world look like? Well, it's not improving any. And what are people willing to pay for earnings in that environment? Not nearly as much as they're paying now. So maybe that Fed put in the S&P comes into play. There's so many moving parts here. 5%, though, is a quantum leap from where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just looking at, you know, I mean, we were at 5% in 2015, in April wow. 2015, and it was a different world. And, and again, we talk about these, these, these terms or these, these reference points you learned in business school, uh, the, the NIRU, which is the non-accelerating inflation 
inflation rate of unemployment, non-inflationary uh, rate of, of unemployment. And so what point do you get below? Is there inflation? Well, we shattered that when you think about uh, all the deflationary tailwinds that came from the technology market. But but the reality is we have a, a participation rate that also uh, is, is kind of a joke right now. We need more people back in, in the labor force. That's something that could happen. That's something that could provide a lot more relief. And if you look at the last couple job numbers, the participation rate has been interesting. It's been a little bit better. That should give the Fed also, because again, part of the, 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 the tightness in wages, which are up 5.1% year over year, is because there's not enough people in the job market. Yeah, the next couple months, though, will be sort of weird because of holiday and seasonal hiring, though, I would right. think. So that adds but, another sort of cloud to this whole, if the Fed is going to focus on jobs, we've got this sort of other filter to, to take into account. Well, I, do, I think Tim's point is if we have the denominator, we have both the, numer- the numerator shrinking right. and the denominator getting bigger, right? That's how you get there more quickly for a big unemployment number. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if we, they, do they need to actually get there or do they need to see the pace of unemployment quicken? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, for more on all this, let's bring in Joe Lavornia of SMBC Nico Securities America. He's also the former uh, National Economic Council Chief Economist. Joe, great to have you with us. Thank um, you. What, what are you looking for? Do you think 5% is the pain point for the Fed? Yes, probably. It's a nice round number. It's a lot higher than where we are now. The, um, if the economy shrinks 2% next year, which would be an average recession relative to trend growth of 2, 1.5, 2, that put the unemployment rate up around five and a half or six. So Guy's point is accurate. It does take a while to get there, but we could have a much different labor market 12 months from now if we have a hard landing, which is what I expect. Do you think that the Fed stops its pace or stops its hikes before that 5% number if it sees things are, are going towards 5%, that, that things are yes. loosening? Yes, definitely, Melissa. I mean, the Fed has talked very tough. But right now, they could hide behind low jobless claims and a pretty decent labor market. Uh, they're going to fold pretty quickly, in my opinion, if the job market starts generating one, two, three hundred thousand job losses a month. It won't matter where inflation is. The Fed knows inflation is a lagging indicator. The market will leapfrog any of the future weakness in inflation. will start the price in Fed easing and the Fed will be cutting. Joe, I mean, people saying they're making a policy mistake now. I would submit it was made many years ago. It doesn't matter. We talk about the Fed put for the S&P 500. I think it's maybe 3,000. Does it exist? And if so, what's your level for it? 3,000 is probably the right number because at 3,000, you probably see credit spreads widen dramatically. That, to me, is probably uh, more important because when the Fed gets worried about solvency issues, then they really start to move aggressively on the, on the easing and start to re-expand the QE which is what basically happened in 2019. They stopped the unwind. They started to expand the QE. They cut 75 basis points. So if S&Ps are 3,000, you're probably looking at high yield up another four or 500 basis points. There'll be more talk of solvency. There's already liquidity issues in the Treasury market. So I think there's more signs of fragility than perhaps what meets the eye. And in that kind of environment, the Fed will be, will be at least stopping the QT and maybe pivoting then for an ease. Joe, what, let's talk about QT for a second, because to what extent could you attribute any of the backup and yields at this point to have anything to do with the Fed in terms of the balance sheet unwind? And, and at what point do you think this also will have upward pressure on interest rates? So, Tim, I, the balance sheet is really impacting liquidity, and you've got an inverted yield curve. Uh, so I don't think that it's been a function of, of the balance sheet. It's been a function of where the market thinks the terminal rate is. And with the exception of the move last week in gilts, which pushed the yields up to 4%, the basically the 
third month out euro dollar contract, fourth month out has uh, or fourth contract out is basically predicted one for one the movement in the funds rate. So, for example, if the Fed was to start pivoting in the spring, which I believe is very possible, you'll see the 10 year note rally substantially. You know, Joe, all of these forecasts are being made uh, assuming that the Fed is going to act and we've, we're, we're living in, the, in a certain world where these things are in place. But, you know, there's an interesting um, thing going out going on in California right now where they're handing out stimulus checks to people. Um, and I'm just thinking, you know, that the path to 5% for a lot of Americans will be a tough one, especially if inflation remains sticky. Are you concerned that there won't be political will on the part of states or, or local municipalities or even the federal government to actually allow that pain to be inflicted and that will, in fact, derail the Fed's work? Well, the, uh, well I mean, there's no question that giving people money to pay for high energy bills, while it may help the household, will do nothing to stop high energy costs. Uh, you need more supply. You need more more drilling, more oil expansion, more everything in terms of energy output, clean as well. I want to, want to, be, I want to be politically correct. But uh, to me, where the, you'll, you'll get the political blowback will be the Fed itself, because the Fed now is accountable for all its actions. It's very transparent. Uh, it said it wants to get inflation down. It can't hide behind the, the uh, reserve procedures, the non-bar reserve procedures that Volcker operated under, where they actually didn't target interest rates. They targeted the money supply. So to me, Melissa, that's where the blowback will be. You've already seen the U.N., you've seen, I believe, the IMF, you've seen a few senators already come out against the Fed. Can you imagine what happens as those rates go up higher, the economy weakens? We're paying hundreds of billions of dollars to banks uh, because of the excess reserve payments we're making and the unemployment rates deteriorating. I mean, can the Fed really have the gumption and the backbone to stay pat? I don't think so. Uh, Joe, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Joe Lavornia. Karen, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I don't love the idea of uh, just giving money away. That's sort of how we got in this situation, yeah. right? And so to the people who need the money, obviously, they need the money. But, you know, I think our last stimulus was really problematic. And so this is, a, I guess, a mini one. Yeah. But I, I can't see, I, I, it feels like, you know, adding oil to the fire. Well, this is policymakers fighting each other, central banks, you know, again, fiscal monetary tug of war um, after the central banks. Like, the central banks did this forever. And they made it really difficult on policymakers because it was basically financial oppression. When rates are zero, people can't save, middle class gets screwed. But um, this is what we're seeing. And you can't give money away. What I find interesting is I think there's, and I'm not suggesting any of us, but if they were to pause, nothing happens on the back of that other than the stock market goes higher. I would submit if they pause. For a while. Guess what? No, but I think the I mean, commodities but, market is going to explode to the upside. So the inflation problem that they think they have under control is just going to get that much worse. This genie is out of the bottle, and it's very hard to tamp it down. And they're going to learn the hard way, I think, that lesson, if they do decide to So they to have pause. to stomp it down. Stomp it. to just stomp, stomp it. it like down when you see that ant, and you can just stomp that sucker. I don't do that, but it sounds like <laughs> I you do. do. Well, I, I suspect it happens probably sooner than we think, and we were just talking about financial conditions. If you look at the LQD, this is the investment-grade uh, corporate bond ETF. It's down 23% from its highs last year. That's basically more than the S&P 500's down. So you think about it, obviously, this is corporate debt. So all the things that you're talking about in high yield, that's much worse right now, right? And if you think about just where, you know, where valuations are, where the economy is going, if we do get to 5% unemployment over the next six to nine months, our economy is not going to be in a great shape and they're going to have to pivot. So I suspect towards the end of this year, we're going to get some sort of, all these Fed governors are coming out here and saying we're going to be uh, hiking oh, yeah. into next year. I think we're going to see them a bit quieter towards the end of this year. 
Coming up, news just crossing uh, the wires here, sending shares of CVS Health lower in the after-hour session, down 4% right now. Details on that next. And AMD, the latest chipmaker to issue a profit warning, will bring you the details, dive into what it means for the broader semi-space when Fast Money returns. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We have got a news alert on CVS. The shares are down more than 4% after hours after the company said a drop in membership could impact revenues. Bertha Coombs has got the details. Bertha. Actually, more precisely, Melissa, the problem is that they are seeing a drop in what's known as the star rating. That's the quality rating for their uh, Medicare Advantage plan and their star flagship plan is losing one star. That means that in the following year, the bonus that they would get for being a four-star plan plus will be significantly lower. So they are warning about that. It's not going to impact this year's uh, uh, revenues, not likely to impact next year, but they're probably going to have to spend a bit more to try to bring those ratings up. The issue apparently Customers complained about the network within that plan. So when you that star rating drops, as you're seeing, it really impacts just how much you can get in terms of a bonus later on. Hmm. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs at the latest in CBS, now down 4.6%. Uh, Karen, we've got to go to you on this. Yeah, sadly, because I own it. Um, I, you know, I don't love to see this. The entire 2022 wouldn't be affected. That makes sense to me. These things are for next sign up. But um, they're saying, you know, they also can get to their 2021 guidance. It's going to be a lot harder now. This is uh, unfortunate, but that that might be a little bit overdone. It's not like this is a frothy stock with a huge multiple. So that sell-off might be overdone. Meantime, uh, AMD shares dropping after hours. The company warning on Q3 results. Revenue for the quarter coming in at $5.6 billion. That's versus $6.7 billion anticipated. Gross margins expected to come in around 50% versus 54% previously. The company citing softening PC sales and inventory corrections in their release. Uh, Dan, another one. Yeah. I mean, this is a massive revenue shortfall. And, yeah. and just, you know, they reiterated their guidance in early August. And since then, we've seen NVIDIA, a competitor in some areas that they play, um, also pre-announce and then guide lower. So this doesn't even include what the guidance looks like for Q4. I don't 
think that you can assume that it's going to be better. And then the other thing, when you think about full year 2023, I mean, I, I really do think we have to start thinking about what EPS declines look like year over year. I don't think we've had that moment where enough analysts have just said that this is going to be a much tougher environment for, for all sectors and all stocks here. Uh, NVIDIA, I think, down a couple percent in sympathy right here. Again, both these stocks have been hammered. AMD's down 60 percent off of those highs. I, I will say, and we started to have this conversation last week when we started talking about different parts of the semiconductor space because they are not all the same. And as you get into like a Taiwan semi, which is already trading 12, 13 times versus historical 17, 18 times in HPC and Foundry. And, and I think it's somewhere you start to look at the second half of next year. That's what the Morgan Stanley note said um, is where you should be buying these stocks somewhere in the next three to six months. That's Makes sense. I mean, if the, if the stock were to, I mean, think about it, this was $165 stock. And I mean, not that that matters, but the point is it's obviously been more than cut in half. But you're starting to get to levels where even with this guide, you're going to start talking about AMD for the first time in a long time, reasonable on valuation. What concerns me here, you're starting to hear from a lot of different people. You haven't heard anything from Apple. And please don't at me on Twitter, but you wonder if it's just a matter of time before this finds its way into Apple, their demand, and what they might say going forward. Just throwing it out there just to create the conversation. Well, I think every, most people on this desk think that that is mm-hmm. to come. You think that is to come? I don't know. I, I just don't know how it couldn't. You know, when you think of like all the signs that we're seeing from all these different yeah. places, and um, you know, so. Yeah. I feel like we're in that vortex where bad news—they each keeps trading down on the other's worse, bad news, worse, worse. right? But it's the same news again and again, right? right. It's not surprising. PC sales we weak. The size of this this revenue miss, though, I don't know if they're just dumping them or what. But, but the closest, yeah. but the farther well, yes. we go from the end of the quarter, the deeper yeah. into the next quarter we go, and these things come out, that just underscores the fact that things are not turning around. No, they're they not. They are proceeding uh, on, the, on a bad path. And, and the cycle of releases is such that, again, they're, they're beating this. This is a prelim. This is a company that's already endured a lot of pain. They haven't really given us this kind of, of, of a pullback. Again, that revenue back 17 percent. I mean, that's a big, big adjustment for a big company. Yeah, I just want to say this. I mean, all of us on this desk, we've been through periods like this, recessionary periods or more markets are starting to anticipate what a difficult cycle looks like and how long it takes to trough. You know, you got to take out 2020 because the visibility there was so poor and all the stimulus and all the weird dynamics about work from home and, uh, you know, all those sorts of things with a lockdown. We know these sorts of periods and they usually take multiple quarters to fix themselves. And the other thing they really need to do is, again, I'll just go back to we need to see analysts come down and just slash 2023 estimates. These stocks really won't bottom until that happens. There is a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Heading to the finish line, Elon Musk saying, finally, he's willing to close his Twitter takeover on the original terms. But what are options traders saying about the deal? We'll dig in. Plus, TikTok on the clock. But this party may stop. ByteDance losing billions as the company chases growth. So is it only time before U.S. tech stocks fall to the same craze? The details next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Twitter clawing back some of the day's losses in the after hours. The company just filing a motion saying it wants its trial against Elon Musk to proceed as planned, saying his request to call off existing litigation is a, quote, an invitation to further mischief and delay. The Tesla CEO earlier said he hopes to close his takeover deal by the end of the month on its original terms. There is a lot of activity uh, in Twitter options today. Mike, what you see? Mike Coe. Yeah, we saw about four times the average daily options volume in Twitter, which is already one of the busiest single stock options. Puts actually traded well over four times their average uh, daily number, and put volume did slightly exceed call volume. The options I was taking a look at were the January 50 puts. Ultimately, we saw almost 19,000 of those trade. Included in that was a purchase of 1,500 of the January 50-40 put spreads. Uh, The buyer of those is obviously betting that it is not a certainty that the deal will close by the end of the month, and that there's a possibility that Twitter will fall below that $50 strike price, perhaps much lower uh, by January expiration. Karen, if you had to bet at this point, which way would you go? Oh, my God. I was looking at it all day long, trying to figure out which bet. Have you ever seen Princess Bride, where they keep switching their drinks, and you keep thinking, well, the other guy must think that I have the poison, so I'll switch. (laughs) I don't know. The end, I didn't do anything. Of course, they're accusing him of mischief. Who's more mischievous than Elon, right? He can't be shocked that they're calling him mischievous. I, I, I don't know what to do. This is the craziest deal I've ever seen. I got no position, so war games kind of thing. Best not to play. Yeah, Dan, you're me. still in, in the camp of it's not going to go through. That's how you're positioned. Yeah, I don't think by the end of the month either. And, I, I, again, I'm just following what David Faber's saying, and I'll trust him because he's doing great reporting. But to me, you know, we talked about it Tuesday on the close when the stock was 52 and there was only 220 yep. left in it. You know, I bought November 50 puts that were like literally 2% of the stock price that were suggesting there's a 30% chance that they would be in the money, meaning the deal wouldn't close at that 54.20 price. So I'm still in that camp right now. All right. Mike Coe, thank you. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. All right. Sticking with uh, social media space. Is the clock ticking on TikTok's parent company? New, new report shared with employees of China's ByteDance revealing the company lost a whopping $7 billion in 2021, more than triple what it lost in 2020. According to the Wall Street Journal, the report shows that even though ByteDance's revenue grew by more than 80% in 2021, costs ballooned as it expanded into video games, semiconductor development, and artificial intelligence. The company, though, did post an operating profit in the first quarter, but will rising costs also plague U.S. competitors like Facebook and Snap? And do rising costs impair it in its competition against these players? Does it give Facebook and Snap a better chance of actually beating, I don't know if that's the right word, TikTok? I think for the listen, a lot of the Facebook headwinds are headwinds that they created. So this is one of them that maybe will abate a bit, but I don't think it's a reason to give the all clear to buy Facebook here at these levels. What I will say, though, some of these other social media names around what you just said, around this Twitter, and listen, Goldman Sachs clearly watched CNBC's Fast Money five o'clock each night, Monday through Friday, because they upgraded Pinterest today. Did you happen to see that? Yes. But you did, didn't you? And they put a thirty-one dollar price target on it. So. That's the place to be. I mean, if there's value theoretically in Twitter, I think at a certain point Pinterest is entering, as is Snap, by the way. 
You know, and back to Meta, look, the big issue here to me is not so much what's going on in the metaverse and how much spending. It's really CPM clicks and cost per click and where they are. And they've been destroyed. And and so and we're talking about where media companies were the first to respond to recessionary headwinds. This is a place where I'd be very excited to get back in on the turn. And I think they will be first to respond on the way back. It's just not time. I did buy some Meta today. Oh, you did? I you did. Well, I'm long. I'm long. Yeah, yeah. I've been long. Your position. I added to my position. I just, I mean, it is just, as you said, getting destroyed. I think that, I mean, if you look at where Pinterest trades, I mean, it's, it's not even remotely close. And there is a tiny black swan, which is what if our government were to say, TikTok, you're done here? That is a tiny black swan for Meta that would be so favorable, right? Yeah. It's obviously not priced in one single tiny bit. Well, it seems like it's a little duckling as opposed a t- to a swan. A, so no, a little, maybe it's I mean, not a full-fledged. As time goes on, you know, we get farther and farther away from the original, you know, idea of banning it. Um, it, it seems less likely, but I don't know. I, I mean, I just, you know, you don't need, you're not paying anything for that with right. the stock here. With right. the stock at this multiple, with this balance sheet, a lot more. So value trade? Or value trapped, Dan. Well, again, I'll just go to, to Meta. I mean, earnings are expected to be down 25% this year. And, and to Guy's point about that pivot to the Meta, they've been spending tens of billions of dollars to figure out how they're going to monetize in a different environment with different competition these 3 billion monthly active users. Investors clearly don't like that. The stock's down 60%. I agree with Karen. I mean, I do think that probably Meta is not so far off. I don't think you're going to want to bet against Mark Zuckerberg if this thing is down near a $300 billion market cap and they still own what they own in far, as far as the, the digital ad markets, especially given the secular shift. Mm-hmm. And if there are any issues as it relates to TikTok here, if we get in a tit for tat with the Chinese or we have these export bans, this is like an easy one right. for them to block. And I agree. First thing, you know, Meta is up 10 percent like that and then snap after that. News just crossing on Twitter, by the way. The Delaware judge has halted the litigation against Elon Musk until 5 p.m. Eastern time, October 28th, mm. to permit the deal to close. This is according to a court filing. We just learned of this moments ago. Uh, We see the stock ticking higher as we speak. So it's allowing the deal to to close. I mean, it's allowing some time for it to happen. But there's the other dynamic of, of debt raising. And to what extent in this environment is this company in the same position to raise the same debt from the same people? No way. And, and, and so, again, I get back to everybody else. I flattened out a Twitter position two days ago. There's no reason even for 10 percent left in the deal uh, or at this point even a little bit less, 8 percent to be in this trade. I mean, you can play it by options. You can lever it up. But if you're levering for this deal to close at 54, I'm not sure why you're doing it, especially with a guy what we call him a rascal. What did we say? Mischievous. Mischievous. We're quoting Twitter. Rascal's a great rascal. word, too, <laughs> yeah, especially to put into a court filing. It probably hardly ever shows up. Um, I was chatting, though, with David Faber on the exchange earlier today, and he said that he believed, according to the sources, he's talked to that the financing would happen and yeah. and that they he, they could invoke a 15-day marketing period which maybe gets you to the October 28th date but that it would happen well, it has to have. This is not an out for him. Right. Right. So the, and the, bank, the banks are on the Well, hook. the debt is an out for him. Yeah. I mean, he could raise more cash by selling Tesla shares if he has to put up all the equity. Listen, there's a chance. These banks are not going to take hundreds of millions of dollars of losses after the Citrix LBO. I think and they so the, are. So when Mel just said, why would they? They have to. Morgan Stanley. the reputation. Why? It, what, what if they actually go to war with him and say, listen, you spent the last four months denigrating this deal that you convinced us to close in April. And so now this property is worth less because 
because of you, not because of other things. It's worth less because of the market. It's worth less because of valuations, because of interest rates. The list goes on and on. I actually take issue, Mel. I think it's the exact opposite. You said it gives them more time for the deal to close. I actually think it gives them more deal <laughs> time for the deal not to happen. And so to me, I actually think this is far from over. More time for mischief. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not clairvoyant. I might have gone to school with her, but I guarantee if you put a Tesla chart up right now, it's lower. It's down and by it four tenths of percent. That was the first thing that I checked. Of course, because that's because we're in each other's head collectively. It's scary. Just it's frightening. But it has had a very tough week. I mean, it's down 10% <laughs> for the week. All right, we'll, we'll bring you more developments as they come. Meantime, we've got even more breaking news this time on DraftKings. Back in two. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got breaking news on DraftKings. Shares are surging and reports of a big deal. Bertha Coombs has got the details. Bertha. Yeah, just a report at this point, Melissa, but the reports, Bloomberg reporting that DraftKings may do a deal with ESPN uh, in order to do some sort of, I guess, sports betting situation. Of course, we have heard ESPN talking about trying to restructure and uh, do new things there. Uh, DraftKings up about 9% on that news. We are trying to get some sort of confirmation from both companies. So far, nothing. Back to you. All right, Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs, Disney shares, by the way, are down by just a quarter of a percent at this point, so not much movement. Obviously, a much bigger impact on the DraftKings side of things, but it is interesting, as Disney CEO Bob Chapek has recently said, that basically they'd be open to do anything. Um, and here we are doing almost anything. Yeah, and we've talked about it. Guys made this point a long time ago that, that if, if, if Disney got rid of ESPN, they wouldn't have to worry about attaching themselves to gambling. It'd be the best thing that ever happened to ESPN. Uh, I'll just say that from a DraftKings perspective, it might be the best thing that ever happened to DraftKings, too, if you tie those two together. But uh, the good news for people that have been some of these gamers, and I think it's even part of why Caesars is a buy, um, is you're seeing a much more rational promotional advertising environment. You're seeing profitability on the horizon, and you're seeing an addressable market that grows. So uh, at these levels, yeah, Yes, uh, I can, and I do own DraftKings. Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Uh, yeah, Guy has been making this point for a very long time. And if, if there's a lot of all these questions about, like, the cost of sports rights, I mean, this is obviously one way to help better monetize that going forward in a, you know, a market where you're seeing a lot of uh, cord cutting and the pressure on that. So, to me, I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm not sure you, you, you chase DraftKings on a rumor right now because it's not confirmed by anything. Yeah. Right. Look at the casinos. Over Today was a lousy day. We've had a couple decent days. Wind, I'm looking at, you know, the highest levels we've seen since early spring, late winter. I mean, very quietly, yeah. these casino stocks are getting off the mat. Now, I'm not suggesting their world is magically getting better, but it's getting, and Tim says this all the time, it's when things just get go from really bad just to shortly or small bad is when you get the biggest moves in these stocks, and that's, I think, what we're seeing now. Something like that. Small bad. Go back to quoting Maya Angelou. Yeah, well, she She's much more interesting than Tim. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, by the way, the short interest is not insignificant on DraftKings. It's 11% of the float. So part of this could be the short squeeze that we're seeing in the after-hour session. DraftKings shares, again, moving on this uh, report. We should underscore that report that it's near a big partnership with ESPN. So those shares are up by about 12% right now. We'll bring you more as we have it. Meantime, coming up on a down day for the markets, energy roars higher. we got the names leading the pack next.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Energy stocks continued their climb today with the XLE rising nearly 2%, the only S&P sector to finish the day in the green. Take a look at shares of Exxon, Hess, Conoco, and Marathon Petroleum, all closing within 5% of 52-week highs. Do you stick with these names? We just had Chris Verone on. Mm. I talked to Carter Braxenworth today on the exchange. They are both in favor of energy stocks. They say they like them right now. Two people in the pantheon of technical yeah. analysts I you meant two are people saying on the yeah. to buy. Part of the, yeah, we talked about Parthenon. They're everywhere. I mean, I, they're, they're somewhere that I'm not. But and to, listen, yes, and we talk about it. Forget about 52-week high. I mean, these stocks are in whispers of their all-time highs in an environment where crude until recently is not traded particularly well. Very, very quietly. Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, some of the levered names are starting to make a move. I think they're trying to tell us that the crude oil is going higher. But even if crude were to stay at this level, in my opinion, on a benign tape, these stocks should be significantly higher than they are now. And, and with a dollar that's up 25% in the last year, and, and remember, every move higher, 1% of the dollar is a 3% move or lower in crude or Brent. So those headwinds, but uh, I, I would get back to the character change in the stock. So it's why it's good to be talking to technical guys about this too, because the outperformance of the XLE versus the underlying over the last eight sessions is extraordinary. And they're all breaking up through that 50-day and actually through the 100-day. Crude and Brent really right here at that 50. Interesting day. The geopolitics in the space are unbelievable right now. I mean, the, the mudslinging and, and the, the politics around oil for this administration at a time they need every vote. Um, look, they're, they're, you know, the battle royale with OPEC, OPEC plus to the extent it can happen is, is on some level happening. It's only going to help pricing right here. And again, this whole thing about the strategic reserves and well, let's throw a few more out there. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty comical. It, it is. And it's not going to do anything other than uh, highlight that we need more supply. That's the problem here. So I'm playing it through the OIH, which you don't really need oil to move a lot. You certainly don't need it to move higher. It could actually even move a little bit lower. And these companies just can be printing money. And I think those two will converge oil and OIH. Yep. All right. Coming up. Huge news in the cannabis space today. What President Biden did that had pot stocks lighting up the details when Fast Money returns. Big news in the cannabis space today. President Biden pardoning thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession and ordering a review of federal pot laws. The pardon's applying to federal offenders and anyone convicted in D.C., but the president has also called on governors across the country to do the same. The news sending pot stocks skyrocketing. Are we jumping to conclusions, Tim? Well, let's let's understand the dynamics here. We're talking about criminal justice. This is different than federalization. This is different than stuff that's going to get them listed on exchanges and the things that the capital markets really want. Investors want that. But it's very important that this is incremental. And, and what's very important about this announcement is, first of all, this wasn't made in a vacuum. This is this to me is an announcement uh, in close uh, conjunction with something that will follow in the Senate, which we've been talking about in the cannabis space forever. Uh, safe Act, safe banking to the extent that in a lame duck session, there's been plenty of conversations that um, there could be something that happens. I'm not going to tell you it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you that there's no question to me this wasn't just a statement made in a vacuum. The other most important thing about what he said is he alluded to the schedule and the schedule one status of cannabis and, and that it's the same as heroin and LSD. Mm -hmm. That dynamic, you remove that dynamic 
and you make the profitability of this sector night and day different. So free cash flow, things that have been, look, the big headwinds for the sector have been about gross margin and the illicit markets and things that are a function of the federal market. But this gets right to, if you get rid of 280E, which is essentially the tax code that the IRS would apply to any Schedule One or illegal activity, and you remove that, it changes free cash flow dynamics for the sector. So it's a very, very exciting day. It was a long time in coming. This wasn't whimsical. And criminal justice is critical to get actually other people in the Senate than to be on board. Now, you've been waiting for this. People have been tweeting about it over the last couple of weeks. I mean, this is a Tim can speak to this, but this is one of those seminal moments in the space that years to come we'll talk about this day when it all changed. Now, MSOS, I think, is one of the ETFs. You obviously have one as well, Tim, but I'm not saying you go out and chase these things because I'm sure there's going to be some ebbs and flows, but I think the space for the first time in a while, you're not going to see that downward air gap volatility like you've seen over the last couple of years. I think now it's investable for a period of time. Yeah, and I'll just say this. It's kind of a brilliant political move. This was a campaign promise by Biden a couple years ago and the timing of it. I mean, let's just before the midterms. Yeah. People like this stuff. Mm. All right. Stay in school, kids. Don't use it. (laughs) Say no. Speaking of hot stocks, do not miss Tilray CEO Irwin Simon tomorrow in Closing Bell. That's 3 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Up next, Final Trades. We had a lot of big movers this hour, so uh, let's recap you. Shares of Twitter giving back early gains after a Delaware judge halted its litigation against Elon Musk until October 28th to allow his takeover deal to close. Shares had gone up by as much as 2-plus percent in the after hours, now just about flat here. CVS, meantime, dropping after a change to Medicare star ratings, which could impact revenues. Uh, We got that stock down by almost 5 percent. And DraftKings surging on a report it is nearing a big deal with ESPN. Trader's choice, which one do you want to trade as we uh, head into the final stretch here, Guy? Can I go off the board for Tesla and say that the pressure in those name is going to continue? And I think the path of least resistance as many of the Tesla bulls out there continues to go lower. And this thing could trade down to the 205-ish would be sort of that pre-split level. That's where I think it trades down to. Uh, what do you think of CVS down 5% here, Karen? Well, I want to try to model it out a little bit more and see what that effect is. I mean, you know, this is a gigantic company. I'm not quite sure what the 2023 and beyond will be, but uh, it feels a little overdone, but I'm not sure. Dan, which one do you want to pick? Was I wasn't listening. Was Twitter on the board? Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. Gosh. I, I, again, I go back to this kind of, not uh, this, this risk reward of four up at max to potentially a lot down, and there's ways to play in the options market that looks cheap to me. All right, it's time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, what do you say? We spent some time talking about energy companies. Karen mentioned the OIH. How about Schlumberger, which to me is the digital play, that's right, in resources and a company that I actually think is finally very profitable. Karen Feinerman. Yes. So we were talking about Meta. I know there's a little disagreement there between uh, Guy and I, but um, I just think at this valuation, this is still an extraordinary company. Generates a ton of cash flow. They already have a ton of cash, and the PE is very cheap. Uh, yeah, Snap. I've been long this one over the course of the summer. It's been banging around between like nine and a half and thirteen and a half just over the last couple of weeks. I actually think, you know, again, the recent strength has to do with this Twitter deal and potentially some of the stuff with TikTok. So to me, I bought some calls yesterday to add to that long stock position. We get some of the best and brightest here, Mel, through that NBC Page program. And Adrian, who has done, he has been, he's in the Parthenon, too. Oh, absolutely. Parthenon and And he's well-dressed tonight, too. He's looking great. Sharp-dressed man. Congratulations. He's leaving to go to NBC. There he is, Wayne. Win Resorts. Mad money. Give it to Shark right now. 
The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.